have to get up and leave your sphere and enter another sphere in order to, to find these people, in order to come across these people. So this is another thing for the church. Usually we wait for ministry to come and find us and we do not transgress boundaries ourselves. We should transgress local boundaries and walk into different areas that are not our usual paths. And that's where we, we will meet people who, who are in need. We will meet Jesus, in fact, because that's where Jesus is and in, in the most needy. My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai Equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve. On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed, The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as International Ministries Director for Langham. Today, Chris talks with Myrto Theohadus from Greece, an Old Testament scholar and the first evangelical woman to get a PhD in Bible and theology in her country. In addition to her work of writing and teaching at Greek Bible College in Athens, she's passionate about equipping the church to love and serve the poor and oppressed. She says it was the book of Deuteronomy that inspired her work as an advocate for victims of sex trafficking. And I think you'll be inspired by her conversation with Chris. Let's listen in. Welcome to On Mission. I'm Chris Wright. And today I have the honor and pleasure of talking with Dr. Mirto Theocharus from Greece. So welcome to you, Mirto. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. It's a pleasure and it's an honor to participate in this podcast. Thank you. Now, Mirto is Professor of Hebrew and Old Testament Studies at the Greek Bible College in Athens in Greece. You and I, Mirto, we first met uh, in 2004 when I came to teach a course for, I think it was about a week or so, at the Greek Bible College. And at that time, you were a third-year student, I think, in the in the bachelor's class. And do you know what? I found the report that I wrote on that visit uh, for, for Langham at the time, and uh, I even mentioned your name within it among the people I'd met. And I just thought you'd like to hear that I wrote about Mirto is a third-year student at uh, the Greek Bible College. She comes from Cyprus. She was remarked upon by the leaders as being a very intelligent, brilliant student. So there you are. Uh, And it goes on that she was something of a leader among the students in the college, a person of great potential who hopes to go on to master's studies in the States or in the UK. 
what you might call a WWW, a woman worth watching. I think I was right. <laughs> oh, I've never heard the WWW uh, designation before. This is this is great. And you did you did go on, in fact, to then uh, do master studies in in Wheaton College, uh, and then after that to to PhD level. So tell us a little bit about that journey. Mm. Yes, uh, so I remember meeting uh, with you and I was really impressed uh, during that year. I was really impressed uh, the old my exposure to the Old Testament in uh, such a depth. Uh, I always loved the Old Testament, but uh, seeing its, uh, its relevance, it, how vibrant and how gospel-centered it was, um, really influenced me and influenced my journey um, into further studies. So I, of course, I didn't have any money or I didn't believe I would make it into to the master's program, but um, I attempted to apply. I attempted to apply for a scholarship as well. And um, uh, it was God's will to receive it and continue to Wheaton College. Um, it was a wonderful experience. I met uh, amazing professors who have inspired me, who have uh, encouraged me, empowered me to continue. Um, I had wonderful classmates uh, and I watched their lives and their passion for, for their studies. So it was overall a wonderful, wonderful experience. Um, that made me want more. Uh, it really pushed me on into pursuing uh, PhD studies. And to do that, uh, you came to Cambridge, the uh, the centre of the universe, in my opinion, uh, to study <laughs> to study the Old Testament under Professor Robert Gordon, who's also an old friend of mine from from Belfast days. Yes, yes, that's right. What What's interesting to me is. You are yourself a, a native Greek speaker, and the New Testament is written in Greek. So how come you know you didn't take that head start? You know, you speak the original language of the New Testament and mm -hmm. doing New Testament studies. How come you chose to do your PhD mm -hmm. in the Old Testament? Um, well, I was uh, I was in love with Hebrew. This is one thing that attracted me. For me, it was more exotic. Uh, usually for students of theology, Greek is the most exotic uh, language for them to, to pursue, but uh, for me it was Hebrew because Greek was something I grew up with. I, I was not particularly uh, intrigued by it, uh, but Hebrew was something completely foreign and uh, so it, it was intriguing to me to get uh, deeper into that. Mm. That's good. And what was your topic within the Old Testament that you did under, under Robert Gordon? Yes, so initially my proposal to Robert was the Book of Deuteronomy. I wanted to explore a theme uh, in the Book of Deuteronomy uh, concerning the mouth of God uh, from Deuteronomy 8.3. Um, that none shall not live by bread alone, but by everything that comes out of God's mouth. So I wanted to uh, explore this metaphor of God's mouth and how this functioned in the ancient world, uh, the, the mouths of the gods. Um, but uh, he was not uh, doing, he was not working in the book of Deuteronomy uh, at that time. He was more interested in the Septuagint. And interestingly enough, the Septuagint... You just need to tell us what the Septuagint is. <laughs> ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, the Septuagint is the, um, uh, the first translation of the Old Testament that was done in another language. 
uh, and this language was Greek. It was done uh, around the third century BC, um, beginning in Alexandria of Egypt. And uh, then uh, the, the Pentateuch was the, were the first uh, books to be translated and then the, the rest of the books of the Old Testament followed. Um, so this was the Bible that the Greek world of the time and New Testament times had access to. Um, the, the book that a lot of the New Testament writers are quoting uh, even. So um, this was understudied. Most of the Old Testament studies focused on the Hebrew text. So Robert wanted to study more uh, the Septuagint and study um, this transfer from the Hebrew language into the Greek how this transfer affected the meanings and the theology uh, in the process. So we were after, uh, we were pursuing to discover the theology of the, uh, of the translator through the choices that he had made in the language uh, or more, more specifically, which uh, texts he combined together and, and mutually interpreted. So, mm. So you yes. did your, your study then in Septuagint, but your love of Deuteronomy mm. didn't fade. And we will come mm. back to that later because I know that uh, it has had a major impact on where you are working now and what you're doing. But we'll, mm. we'll, come, we'll come to that in a moment. Let's mm. go back uh, to Greece. Uh, Cyprus, obviously your, your yes. homeland, but Greece where you now live and work. Mm. Many of us think of Greece as a wonderful holiday destination. You know, it's a beautiful country, lovely islands, wonderful sea and all of that. But the reality, I think, these days is, is very different. Can you bring us up to date? What, what is the reality of Greece right now? Yes, so it is a destination for <laughs> holidays. The beautiful side is unchangeable. So uh, people usually joke that uh, poverty or taxes cannot affect the sun or cannot affect the, the waters of the sea. Um, so it's true that uh, it's a beautiful place and uh, I really enjoy it. I don't feel that I am really suffering in the mission field to be <laughs> to be in Athens. There's wonderful weather and um, the people are great. I particularly like the, this, uh, the, the Greek culture, the openness that characterizes the people. Uh, they're, they're very friendly, they're very open, they're approachable to talk to. Uh, but you're right that it's been through uh, many difficulties, many challenges, uh, beginning with the financial crisis, then the refugee crisis followed. Uh, and then it was the, the lockdowns which continue due to COVID-19, which uh, affect the economy very much and uh, causing it to sink even further. So uh, it, it faced uh, really difficult challenges from which it has not uh, recovered. So what's it like, in a sense, to be teaching the scriptures in a country and indeed in a city where the Apostle Paul stood and taught and contended for the gospel? Yes, so apart from the ecclesiastical theological circles, this is, um, this is very unknown. Not much attention is paid by the, the people uh, to this heritage. So it's, um, it's often something that we have to do. We have to revive it uh, for the people to, to show what started here and and make them see the connections between the, the 
the ancient culture that existed there and, and uh, how it can help us understand the message of the New Testament and uh, how it uh, supersedes the, the message of the, the ideologies of the ancient world and, and introduces something new. So this is uh, definitely a challenge and it's, um, it's, it's interesting even for church people uh, to begin to see the connections, to begin to get to know their heritage, um, that is, it's, uh, it's very unknown to them too. Mm. At the moment, of course, we, you mentioned earlier the, the refugee crisis mm. uh, in Greece, and we, we realize that that's been a major thing, uh, both between Turkey and Greece and the refugees from the Middle East and so on. Mm. T- tell us a bit about how that has impacted the church in Greece and and what response Christians have made. Yes, so uh, the evangelical church in Greece is is tiny. It's uh, 0.02%. So um, this is the Greek evangelical church is this number. Um, There's, of course, many immigrant churches, immigrant evangelical churches, uh, that have not been counted, but the Greek church is at that level. Um, there is just a little bit of a numerical growth from Greek in Greek evangelicalism, but generally uh, it's very, very difficult to, uh, to show any numerical growth. But of course there is some, uh, uh, I have observed some maturing of the church um, before this crisis that has happened. Uh, the church took its role very seriously once the the refugee crisis started, and uh, they um, they organized very well and they wanted to respond immediately with a more uh, socially active uh, role in the city, in the islands, uh, in places where there were uh, borders um, that uh, the refugees crossed. So. Um, many, many things started. The church was creative. They started giving uh, lessons for uh, English or Greek to refugees or teaching them uh, to do crafts or um, trying to help them in in various ways, giving them accommodation, uh, food, uh, many feeding ministries started. So uh, it was a good thing for the church in a sense, uh, meaning that Uh, it brought to the surface the true identity of the church in action. Mm. Even though the church, the evangelical church is so small, it it sounds that it's a bit like Jesus talked about mustard seeds, you know, Mm. being salt and light. You you don't need a lot of seed. You don't need a lot of salt. Mm. Uh, You can do, you can have a big impact even if you're small. Mm. So, I mean, many of us think of Greece as basically a a Christian country uh, because it is, you know, uh, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church is the predominant cultural reality. Can you tell us a bit about what is that like? I mean, what what is Greek Orthodoxy and why, in a sense, why then is the evangelical community so tiny? Uh, Yes, so this is a reason that the evangelical church is very tiny because the the country is supposedly Christian or... um, they declare that they are Christian, so they don't need to hear about Christianity from anywhere else, or um, they don't feel that they are lacking anything in their faith. Um, 
but uh, we observe that uh, this has become a, a cultural identifier rather than um, a really vibrant uh, kind of faith. Uh, I saw this in my own mother, by the way, that I have mentioned before, that uh, she was not satisfied with uh, just the declaration that I am I'm Orthodox, I'm Christian Orthodox. She wanted to have a more um, uh, a, a vibrant, more um, interactive relationship with, uh, with God, let's say. Um, so this may be a reason that the, the church is not uh, increasing very much among the Greeks, uh, but it has a lot of success, uh, let's say, with, uh, with the immigrants uh, who come and with refugees. So it's a good, uh, it's, that's a good field uh, that has been very receptive. Um, but uh, yeah, there's many, many commonalities with the Orthodox Church. There, there are people, of course, in the Orthodox Church that are very conscious of their faith. They're very spiritual. They're practicing uh, consciously what they believe. Uh, and there's others who just uh, go through the moves. Uh, they, um, they don't attend uh, church unless... Uh, um, someone's getting married or baptized or something like that. So um, it is, it's just an uh, um, antiquarian, uh, let's say, um, practice that, uh, that people may do. Um, so I guess you could, you could, see, you could see both, but the, this is the majority. The majority is, is more of a, um, of a culture identifier rather than a, a lively faith. But would that mean that for people that you and others would be sharing your faith with, with uh, Orthodox fellow Greek Orthodox people, it's not so much a question of asking them to convert to Christianity because they see themselves already as Christians, mm. but to seek to bring them to a, a biblical and relationally real. Is that more what mission means in your context? Uh, yes, precisely. So uh, we need to um, show the people that the faith that they have inherited has truths in it, uh, has something to be recovered. It's, it's vibrant, it's relevant for them, for their lives today. Um, so not to dismiss it as something that is irrelevant for our age, uh, for the contemporary world. So we're basically fighting against uh, secularism. Uh, this is uh, atheism and secularism is, is the, the big enemy, let's say, of, of uh, people's faith or cynicism. And, and many times the testimony of the church itself. So people don't want to hear about the church because they have seen many bad examples. So um, we, the message is to, to disassociate the, the people, the representatives from the actual faith, uh, doctrines of the church and the scriptures, and invite people to revisit this faith they have inherited and, and find its treasure uh, again from the beginning, recover it. Because it is a very ancient tradition, isn't it? I mean, we, mm. many of us in the Western church are quite unaware mm. of the you know, mm. thousand or more years of, of history of the Orthodox communion uh, in Greece and in Russia and in, uh, and in Egypt, where we'll come in a moment. So it's mm. a reality that we perhaps need to learn more about and understand more about evangelical witness among uh, other mm. Christian uh, faith communities. Yeah. Mm. Of course, the 
the gospel came to Europe through Greece, didn't it? I mean, I'm going right back to the book of Acts now and uh, to the, the so-called Macedonian call. Do you remember when Paul is in Troas and receives this call from a man from Macedonia, come over and help us. And then he arrives in Philippi and then he goes to Thessalonica, as we pronounce it. But those are places that you know well. And I think you actually teach in Thessalonica by its proper Greek name now, don't you, sometimes? Uh, in Thessaloniki, uh, this is how we, we pronounce it today, Thessaloniki. Uh, yes, yes, I, I visit Thessaloniki often. I have, I participated in conferences there. I teach uh, at the church or uh, academic conferences. Um, so yes, it's, it's very well known to me. There's a beautiful church, beautiful churches there, uh, brothers and sisters that I visit often. So uh, yes, but my base is in Athens. The Greek Bible College is in Athens, um, so that's where I am most of the most of the year. Uh, Thessaloniki, I understand that you also engage in theological discussion with Orthodox professors and theologians. Is, isn't that the case? How does that work? Do they accept you as 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 a, a peer? Uh, you know, with your PhD in biblical theology, do they respect that and and listen to what you have to say and to write? Yes, there's a lot of openness in the academic world, uh, in the theological academic world. Um, so we have uh, no problem cooperating together with uh, colleagues from the uh, Orthodox faith. We very often uh, um, uh, organize conferences together or we may write for the same volumes of books or journals. Uh, so we have a very good relationship. And like I said before, the uh, of what mission uh, looks like among the Greeks today of uh, helping them recover the lost uh, heritage, the lost treasures for them, for, the, for their lives today. This is the same mission for uh, people in the Orthodox world who are conscious of their faith and they, they love the scriptures, they, uh, they see the, the richness and the, the treasure uh, in their heritage, and so in that we can unite in a in a common uh, in a common goal and a common purpose, because this is uh, precisely the same mission. So we find um, that in this we have uh, similar interests, uh, similar purposes. Mirto, mm. mm. you uh, increasingly now are also speaking and giving lectures and papers and so on uh, outside Greece in places like Britain and uh, North America and the US where you've studied and, and uh, worked. What sort of message do you think that the church in Greece and what you've learned can be shared with churches further west uh, in places like the US and Britain? Yes, yeah, so uh, every church has a lot to learn, of course. It has its goods and bads and room to, to grow. Um, but one thing I see um, very much in Greece is, is the benefit of being uh, a church without power, without political power. And, and this is something, this is a gift, uh, in my opinion, for the church, the lack of power. Uh, it forces the church to serve under the radar. It forces the church to, to have humility, uh, not to seek its own glory and its own purposes, not to exercise power over others who are perhaps of a different faith or a different um, denomination. 
so it is definitely a gift uh, to have a lack of power. So I would encourage uh, for the churches uh, where um, this is not the case in other countries of the West to uh, to practice some, uh, more of a canonic ecclesiology, canonic of uh, an emptying of their power, uh, surrendering of the of their power. Um, for uh, even if it appears um, that the church is the loser uh, to the world, uh, it's okay. The salvation was achieved by this appearance of Jesus being a loser. So this should be a mark of the church, in my opinion. It should not be a triumphant church in the world that's always praised and always admired. Um, we must uh, find places where the church is, is um, it's ridiculed. We, we must see this too, and we must embrace it as a mark of our identity as well. So this humbling, this humility is, is something that we need and we should pursue uh, in, in places where uh, there is more power for the church. Thank you. That is a, a powerful message, even though it's a message about a lack of power, but I think it's a message that very much needs to be heard in some parts of our world churches. Let me move on to what you do when you're not in the classroom, because you are a teacher and a writer, but you've said publicly that the book of Deuteronomy inspired you in some directions to literally get out onto the streets and to be involved with some of the lowest and the least of those whom society often despises. And I just want to quote from something that you've written uh, or quote from an, uh, an interview with you at Tyndale House where I'm quoting that you say, I want to combine social action with a theological understanding about what it means to be human. That's what drives my research. And another quote, if the church wants to imitate its God, it must become a church that seeks liberation for the oppressed. You can't be the church without adopting this identity. Could you tell us more about that, both theologically, why you feel that from the Bible, and also what it has led you to do and to be involved in over these years? Well, uh, Chris, you've written about this so many times, so <laughs> you have a better answer, I'm sure. Uh, but uh, yes, and your, your writings have been influential because uh, it's, uh, it's obvious that uh, the Bible, the Old Testament, are giving uh, the purpose of the Old Testament and especially Deuteronomy is to form the identity of the people. If we know who we are in, uh, in God's world, where God is, what is our purposes, our goals, our, our full identity, then we are able to place all our actions within that identity. Our actions make sense. Um, I mean, we could be performing the same action with someone uh, uh, from another uh, narrative or another identity, but we must be um, uh, we must be clear and we must be conscious about why we are the way we are and why we are doing the things we are doing. And uh, the, the scriptures, the message especially of Deuteronomy is, uh, should be giving us the reasons, should be defining the reasons why we are and why we do certain things. Um, and also, uh, in our lives and in our actions, in our ministries, we should always return back to it and check our reasons constantly to make sure that these are the reasons why we're acting the way we're acting in the world. 
um, Deuteronomy keeps repeating, and, and not only Deuteronomy, uh, this famous phrase, for you were slaves in Egypt, therefore do this and that. So the, the mandate for action comes from the identity of being liberated, of having been liberated by a liberator God. So for me, I couldn't see any other way of being other than uh, discovering, tracing, seeking the people who are not enjoying the same liberation that I am and, uh, and finding them and inviting them to, to taste the, the same liberation from this God. So in that sense, yes, Deuteronomy that gives, um, of course, Deuteronomy, it's an ancient book. It has its own problems. It's rooted in its, its own culture. But what it tries to do and how it's trying to move a people into a different identity based on liberation it's really important and it's very, very educational, informative for us to, uh, to examine and, and to reflect on. And of course, it was very influential on Jesus yes. himself. Yes, his ministry. exactly. So, so tell us then what exactly you do. You've actually been involved on the streets with trafficked women and prostitutes and have led others into that ministry and actually formed a ministry in that area. Can you tell us about that? Yes, so I was exposed to this ministry against uh, sex trafficking and prostitution in Athens uh, since I was a student. Uh, probably uh, at the year that uh, we had met, uh, Chris, I think it was 2004. Um, so um, I was really amazed by this ministry. It was a world that I had not known before. I, uh, of course, why would I know this world? You have to get up and leave your sphere and enter another sphere um, in order to, to find these people, in order to come across these people. So this is another thing for the church. Usually we wait for ministry to come and find us. Uh, and we do not transgress boundaries ourselves. We should transgress local boundaries and, and uh, walk into different areas that are not our usual paths. And that's where we, we will meet people who, who are in need, who have, uh, we will meet Jesus, in fact, because that's where Jesus is in, in the most needy. Um, so I was exposed to this ministry in 2004, and I started uh, um, participating in it. Um, I, I started seeing my theology in action. I started uh, looking at uh, uh, what I was reading, uh, my theology, through the eyes of the ministry. So it was a mutual, um, mutually influential, let's say. So my theology influenced uh, my action and, and my ministry influenced the way I read. Um, so it was mutually beneficial in a sense. Um, and I continued to do it um, uh, through the years. Every time I was back in Greece, um, I, I would uh, go to the outreach. We would uh, go to the brothels with a uh, uh, small team of volunteers. I would find the women. We would uh, uh, serve them in any kind of need they had, uh, gain their trust and uh, offer uh, help to them, uh, help of liberation whether that is physical or uh, spiritual, it's, it's, uh, they are connected, um, just like they were connected in Exodus, I guess. If these people, these uh, women, are trafficked and basically enslaved, then the kind of work that you and your colleagues do must be also potentially dangerous? 
Uh, yes, it is potentially dangerous, although we have never faced uh, um, any real danger where we were. We go, um, we go as a Christian group that offers um, uh, literature, um, coffee or tea to the women. Uh, we are not introducing ourselves as um, uh, those who, who came to take uh, the girls out of their profession, let's say. Um, so uh, we are not considered a threat uh, like that with this with this identity. So um, it's it's easier to to do our ministry in this way. And can you tell us how any of these women have responded to that? Yes, of course. This is a difficult ministry because of what we have just said. The identity, uh, the identity is is solidified in a person. And in order to redefine one's identity, it takes time. Uh, it takes different paradigms. They must be exposed to different paradigms. So, um, for these women to to see and and comprehend a different kind of love that is not self-seeking, takes time. It takes time for them to trust. It takes time to understand what we mean by uh, mo the most basic words like. Uh, love like God uh, who is God we need to introduce the the content of the word uh, introduce it by by action and and by words so th this takes time but it's it's mostly uh, the trust we must prove ourselves to them that we are trustworthy and once we do we've had cases of women who opened up uh, they let go of their fear of being uh, discovered by their traffickers. They opened up and sought our help. And so we were able to help them escape, uh, able to help them um, uh, do Bible studies with us and uh, introduce, uh, introduce them to the God of the scriptures and their own liberator, the God who motivated us to go to them. So... Uh, we've seen uh, this journey for some of the of these women, and we continue to see it. So, we uh, had the opportunity to develop uh, different ministries that um, uh, that connect to the outreach that we do. So, ministries of the of the second step of uh, psychological help, uh, giving psychological help, giving training so that people are um, prepared for a different vocation and can earn money differently. And then also um, creating, through the help of other people, creating new jobs uh, for these women to be employed. Uh, so we've had um, uh, clothes stores that employed the women uh, who came out of trafficking. And now we have a bookstore that is employing women. We have a, uh, a center that uh, produces uh, handbags um, that women can work there. So um, there's many, many steps to the full liberation and integration of these women. I've heard you speak uh, about the image of God and the fact that the the Christian belief that all human beings share in the image of God has often been used as a justification for helping those who are victims or oppressed to see them as bearing the image of God. But in a recent paper you were saying that we also need to see it from the other way round, 
that the image of God has to do with those who have the responsibility of exercising God's justice and God's righteousness and God's compassion in the world. That is what it is to reflect and image God. Would you like to say something about that as, a, in some ways, a surprising theological take on that concept of the image of God? Uh, yes, so we have um, focused for for centuries, ever since the first interpretations, the patristic interpretations on what the image of God is. Uh, it was uh, something that is inherent in every human being. Uh, people were trying to explain what aspects of humans are the image, what is the likeness, dividing the, the, the image and likeness into two different things, focusing on uh, the sanctification of the person, the theosis in the Orthodox Church as the pursuit of the likeness um, to God. Uh, and we neglected, again, the uh, aspect of action of, of, uh, and, and particularly of justice. Um, in, a, in, a re in a recent paper, the one you're referring to, Chris, um, I was studying this, um, this notion of the image of God in uh, the ancient Near East, and, um, and I saw uh, that um, what characterized people who were uh, called the image of God, which was particularly the kings, it was their... Uh, their ability to offer justice to the poor, justice to the widows and the orphans. And this is what made someone a good image of God. Uh, if, if you're a good king, if you're the image of, of your God, then this is how it's expressed uh, in, in the world, uh, in your ruling. So I saw this as a neglected aspect. It was not, uh, for me, it was not a given that someone is the image of God. Um, it was, it's, it was a, a, a characteristic that uh, should be expressed uh, in the world. And in, on, the other, on the other side, uh, uh, kings were judged for not being a true image of God when they did not um, act this way, when they did not offer uh, justice to the poor and the widows and the orphans. So um, I, I flipped it around this way. I saw that it's, uh, we should be focusing more on whether uh, not the people that we serve are the image of God. That's always a given in the, in the scriptures, never discussed whether the poor are the image of God, that they are always worthy of receiving justice from, from us. But uh, what was at stake was whether we are true images. Um, uh, that's what I saw in the ancient world. So this is what I wanted to recover and how it can be relevant for the church. Uh, are we imaging uh, our God in this sense? Are we uh, taking the role of, of, of the kingdom in, uh, in uh, giving justice to the poor, uh, the marginalized, etc.? So I wanted to shift yeah. the And the in many ways, that shifting of that emphasis is, is quite helpful in terms of thinking about what it means to be on mission. Because if we're on mission, we are on the mission of God. And you can't really be on mission for God unless in some way you are reflecting his character and his priorities uh, into the world. You're, you're imaging him in the world is what it, is part, at least, of what it means to be on mission or to be participating in God's mission in the world, it seems. Um, 
Now, going back a little bit to your the fact that you got your PhD and so on, uh, you are, in fact, as I understand it, the first uh, evangelical woman in Greece to have a PhD in Bible and theology. And I'm just wondering if there are any more since you or any on their way. Uh, yes, uh, from what I know, I'm the first one um, in Greece and also who's using it to, to teach uh, at a college. Um, and uh, right now, uh, I do have some uh, female students that are pursuing uh, their doctorates in this area. Uh, two or three are now working in uh, different areas, patristics, uh, uh, Old Testament, um, New Testament. So we have a, a variety. Uh, this was my, my goal, my dream when I started teaching that um, uh, I wanted uh, more women to start seeing themselves uh, capable of, of doing something like this. There was no such paradigm for them to follow. Uh, the Bible and, and the teaching of the Bible and the explanation of the Bible always came from the mouth of men. So they could not imagine themselves in that position. Uh, they didn't have that image. So this was one of my goals, and I'm very happy that it's, it's happening. Uh, not massively, but it is. We're making baby steps. Uh, so I'm very happy for that. Is that a struggle for you personally, being a woman and being in the profession of Bible teaching and training others? Uh, I was generally received very well by the community, uh, the students. Uh, of course, we've had some exceptions of people who are more um, uh, fundamentalists and they were opposing any kind of teaching from, from a woman. Uh, but for the most part, the church has embraced this. They, um, they have been receiving many, many invitations uh, from churches uh, to, to speak to them from youth groups. Uh, and uh, right now I'm even teaching at my local church on Sundays. Uh, after the service, we have uh, classes for Bible teaching and I'm uh, regularly uh, teaching there. So um, this part has been, has been good. Uh, I, the, the, the road was open, um, but there's still a long way to go. Um, it's not, the, the mentality has not shifted. There's still a lot to, to be achieved. Um, it's, a, it's a culture that has been cultivated for centuries for women not to speak uh, on the things about the Bible. So um, I observe even in the classroom that usually the girls don't trust their own opinion about the Bible and, and they are very, very reluctant on speaking uh, and sharing. They, they keep quiet for not making a mistake. So to shift all that, all, all that heritage of many, many years of, of being silent and not encouraged in this uh, is a struggle, yes. Um, and also the, the issue of, of employment uh, and full-time ministry is, is a big issue. Uh, so there's no incentives uh, for women to, to pursue this because they won't be uh, pastors, they won't be church planters, they won't be preachers. They, they will not basically receive compensation for, uh, for what they're doing. They, they, they may be assigned to do uh, voluntary works 
but uh, there's no compensation, so there's no incentive to, to entering in, in a full-time uh, study, full-time uh, career in this area. Just going back for a moment to uh, the Macedonian call, it always strikes me as a little ironic that Paul's vision, he saw a man from Macedonia saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when he got there, the, the first people that he shared the gospel with were women. And the first, basically the first convert in Europe was Lydia. Uh, and she also then became, uh, as, a, as a house owner and a trainer, uh, a trader, became a patron of the gospel uh, in, in Greece and supported Paul's ministry. So uh, it is an amazing precedent, in a sense, for, for what you're seeking to do there. Now then, um, August of this year was a very happy month for you. Would you like to tell us why? Uh, yes, uh, with pleasure. So on August 29th, I got married uh, to a lovely Christian man uh, from Egypt. He's Egyptian. He's a Coptic Orthodox. His name is Riyad Gobrial. Uh, and um, we met actually in a Lausanne initiative, uh, in a Lausanne conference uh, that took place uh, exactly one year ago here in, in Cairo, in uh, Wadi al-Natrun in the monastery of St. Bishoy. So uh, you wouldn't expect uh, to, to meet uh, your husband at the monastery. Usually people go there for the opposite. <laughs> But uh, my life was not uh, really the uh, the normal way of uh, doing things. So uh, I guess this is what God had ordained. You are, as I speak to you, still in Cairo, I believe. And so presumably you would like us to pray that all will go to enable you and Riyadh to go back to Greece. Yes, we're still in Cairo. We're still uh, trying to, to get a visa for Riyadh to, to come to Athens, uh, back to Athens with me. But... Uh, there's many steps that need to take place before before that happens. Uh, so yes, please pray for us uh, for this process to go smoothly and to discover God's will among these delays. We will we will certainly pray for that, uh, Mirto. And it's been wonderful talking to you. So thank you so much for all that you've shared. Thank you. Same here. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed learning a bit about how God is at work in Greece using leaders like Mirto. Their conversation has me thinking and praying about how and where God wants to move me out of my comfort zone to encounter and love and serve those in need. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless.